we're going to talk about textbook inaccuracies. There is a lot of stuff in our textbooks that are teaching our children things that just aren't accurate. It's so much that oftentimes we feel like this rabbit here, that we are being attacked from every direction. There is no hope. But if you really want to know what truth is, truth is this. We win. Because we have truth on our side. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And when we're looking at textbooks, the key to understanding truth is going to be to make sure that you're using the scriptures as your worldview, your foundation. Colossians 2 tells us that all wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ Jesus. And that's why it's so important for our children to understand Christ in their education because all truth and knowledge are hidden in Christ Jesus. Without that foundation, there really isn't any wisdom that can be gained out of it. You can get knowledge. You, you can get your ABCs and 123s, even get your PhDs, but the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So without Christ, all that knowledge, we don't know how to apply it to life. And that's part of the issue here. Now, if one were to prove this God of the Christians to us, we should be even less able to believe in him, said Nietzsche. I think there's a lot of truth in that. If we could prove God's existence or prove God to people, then I wouldn't want to believe in him because that makes him a very small God if we can wrap our minds around this omnipotent creator. It makes him a very small God. Agnostics, they often accuse us as being empty-minded, right? Closed-minded. Well, the question that I'd like to ask them is, are you open-minded? No, they're not. The bottom line is, is when we attack things that are in the science textbooks today, we're closed-minded, we're religious, we're just this or that. The, I would say they're the ones that are not open-minded. See, I, I want to teach my kids about evolution in the textbooks, I want them to know evolution. I want them to know creation as well. I'm just going to say that evolution is wrong, creation is right, based not only on the Bible, but on what science says. And we just don't want to be so open-minded that our brains fall out. All right? We just have to have a discerning eye to the information that's in textbooks. Given enough time, do you think natural laws could produce what we see today in science? Well, no. There's just no way. Time, though, is always the hero for an evolutionist. Add more time, then you're going to have, you know, uh, the ability for evolution to take place. We use the analogy, if you would cut up a picture, put it into maybe ten pieces, ten even squares, put it in a bag or a bucket, and go stand on top of a six-foot ladder and then shake those things out and let the picture form on the ground. How many times are you going to have to do that until you get your picture to form? It's never going to happen, is it? Well, given enough time. Well, the problem is when we're dealing with, with organic stuff and DNA, time is an enemy. A good way to illustrate that because of mutations and things just, the, well, the second law of thermodynamics, things wearing out. The more time, the more harm that can take place. It's like now taking that bucket and go standing on top of your roof and shaking it out. Are you going to get closer to the possibility of getting your picture back? No. 
How about take it up in an airplane and now dump it out? No, the further you go, the more time you give it, the more time for chaos and disorder to take place. And so this idea of time, technically, is an enemy of evolution, not a friend. Truth is truth, regardless of what we believe. But in our society, we've got so many people twisting truth, saying things like this, well, it's true for you, but it's not true for me. Well, that's not truth. Truth is true for everybody, regardless. But they are so inconsistent. Things like, don't judge me. Well, and them telling me that I can't judge them, you know what they just did? Judged me, right? These are the kind of inconsistent statements that are being made. There's no such thing as truth. Is that true? You see, even the statement itself is false. Because if there is no such thing as truth, then that statement can't even be proven to be true. These are some of the inconsistencies that we see. Now, I'm pointing this out. We're talking about textbook inaccuracies, but this is the kind of illogical reasoning that is used oftentimes in textbooks, as you're going to see here. Like I said, sometimes we feel like this rabbit. But the truth does come out when we take the time to look at it. Let me ask you this. Anybody here think that teachers or textbooks should be allowed to deliberately lie to students? Of course not. No, we, we shouldn't be able to lie to students. Well, do you know that there are laws in almost every state to make sure that your students, your children and grandchildren are not going to be lied to? Wisconsin has Administrative Code 361, which says the textbooks need to be factually accurate. Alabama has a code uh, that says that textbooks should be adequate and current. Texas says instructional materials are to be factual. Theories should be clearly distinguished from facts. Florida, all instructional materials shall be accurate. We have California, textbooks should be factually accurate with current and confirmed research. Yet, you know what's interesting about this? Is that when textbooks are being challenged when it comes to the theory of evolution, teachers are fired. They lose their tenure. They're pressured to leave. This has happened time and time again throughout the country. I'm not going to get into all the examples of it, but we can look at Iowa State to all around the country where people have lost their jobs because they challenged evolution with current and confirmed research without even touching the Bible, a Bible verse, or mentioning the word God. I'm not talking intelligent design. We're just talking science that goes against the theory of evolution, against the theory of the Big Bang. They don't like to talk about the problems of evolution. They just want to shove it down our throats to make us say that it's real. It happens. And if you question us, you're going down. So it doesn't matter. These laws, even though they're good laws, aren't protecting us. In Minnesota, we see a teacher shall not deliberately suppress or distort subject matter. Well, how about this then? Is there anyone here who thinks that teachers or textbooks should be allowed to use outdated or false information just to get students to believe their theory? No. 
Nobody in their right mind is going to say, yeah, we should be able to do that, but that's what's happening. And I say that this is a very dangerous presentation for teachers because I'm going to show you some things here that if you are going to teach your kids now that you know the truth, then you should be held accountable. How many of you think that teachers who deliberately lie to our students, our children, should be fired? Yeah, me too. A lot of people, "Uh, I don't know. Hey, if they're going to deliberately lie. Now, I am by no means saying that everybody who teaches evolution is deliberately lying to their kids. They're not. Some of them don't know any better. They really believe this themselves. And that's why I say this is dangerous. Because when I show you some of these things that are in our textbooks, and you find out that they're not true, you should be held accountable if you're going to continue to teach them. That's why this is dangerous for you. Anybody here think textbooks with lies should be banned or at least the lies torn out? I do. But again, many people, oh, we don't want to teach our kids to deface the textbooks. You know what? When I was a teacher, if there was a math book and the math book said 2 plus 2 was 6, I told the kids, hey, turn to page 34, number 4 there, Scratch out that answer and put the right one in. How come we can't do it with our science textbooks then? It's no different. What's happened is that we have been programmed to believe that that textbook isn't lying to us. If I were to ask you, what's 5 plus 5? And I said, but wait, before you answer, you can't say 10. Now, you're not allowed to use sign language... Okay, you can't use other languages. You can't say DS, DS, or you know, any of those kind of things. You can't use foreign languages. You can't use combinations of adding and subtracting, multiplying and dividing. You can't use base rhythms, logarithms, or anything like that. What is 5 plus 5? 48? You bet. 93? I'll accept that. 1,523? Sure, why not? You see what's happened? When we've removed the only possible explanation for truth, anything but truth has become acceptable. And that is where we are in our textbooks. When we challenge evolution, and the only possible explanation is an intelligent designer named Jesus, but when we remove that only possible truthful answer, anything but truth becomes acceptable. And that's what's happening. Let me show you here this textbook. Now, this is a Holt Biology 2001 textbook, so it's old, but it's only gotten worse. You're going to see some more modern textbooks, but it only gets worse. Can you see here outlined in red, all of these pages are dedicated to teaching your kids evolution. That is a lot of this textbook trying to teach evolution, over a third of that book. So what I want to do is I'm going to show you how they're teaching this idea of evolution through word recognition. If we train our kids to have a discerning mind to recognize certain words, it's going to be helpful. Look at this. Monitor comprehension. Make generalizations. A generalization is a broad statement. It combines facts in a selection with what a reader already knows to tell what is true. You know what this textbook is admitting? Everybody has a worldview. You have to take the data, the facts, and you're going to interpret 
that data based on something you already know to be true. That's called a world view, a presupposition. Something you're bringing in to the, the uh, classroom before the professor says a word. And so our children need to have a strong biblical worldview before they sit down in that desk in the classroom. Because everybody has a worldview. It will either be a godly one or an ungodly one. Here, scientific theory. A scientific theory is an explanation of observation or events that is based on knowledge gained from many observations and investigations. Now, I would agree with that. It's based on observations. That's a key word to look for. And it's a key word to ask yourself when you're looking in a textbook. Has this been observed? Who's seen this? Have we been able to apply our senses, smell, sight, hearing, taste, taste, and touch, to investigate this? If you can't, then it's not observation. It's not science without an observation. It's not at all. The solar nebula in this textbook says, A solar system formed from a cloud of gas, ice, and dust called a nebula. Gravity pulled the material closer together. The nebula shrank and flattened into a disk. The disk began to rotate. Then it goes next. The planets began to take shape as gravity pulled these small particles together. Let me ask you, does this sound like a theory or a fact? It sounds like somebody actually observed this, doesn't it? Train your children to look for observational facts and theories that are pulled out of the sky. Because this is presented as a fact, even though it isn't. When the ancient earth started melting, something much like this happened. The densest material sank, formed the innermost layer of the earth. The least dense material also stayed at the surface. Now, who was there watching this happen? Nobody. Again, it's stated as if it's a fact. It's stated as if we know 100% this is what it does when we don't know that. Now, can we do scientific explanations to see how denser things will you know, uh, sink to the bottom? Absolutely, we can. But there's still an assumption brought into this. They're assuming that the earth was formed over millions of years and you had a long time to have this happen. That's an assumption, not an observation. And the Bible would indicate the exact opposite, that these things formed quickly. By the way, science can also back that up in other areas of granite and whatnot, but we're not going to get into that right now. Look here. The word prehistoric is used oftentimes in textbook. Another word recognition, prehistoric. Can anybody name something prehistoric for me? Yeah, dinosaurs, woolly mammoths, okay, saber-toothed tigers, things like that are often brought up, right? Well, that word prehistoric shouldn't even be in our textbooks. That word was invented to make you think about long periods of time. The word pre means before historic history. Prehistoric. Well, my Bible records history from the beginning. There's no such thing as prehistoric. But as soon as that word is said, in the minds of almost every adult and child today, something like a dinosaur or something you know, very ancient pops up in their minds. 
when in fact, the Bible says the earth is just a few thousand years old. There is no such thing as prehistoric. This is a brainwashing term. Now, I've said it before in other uh, presentations, but the bottom line is every one of us has been brainwashed. There's no question about it. We've been taught sports builds character. And sports, especially in a small town like this, sports are important. We want our kids to be in sports because of the character building you know, that goes on in, in athletics. But again, this is a lie. If sports builds character, then the NFL and the NBA ought to be the most character-filled people in our country. They're characters, but very few have character. And if they do have characters, typically because they're Christians. So, again, I'm not against sports. Go ahead and play them, watch them, love them. Just don't believe the lie that they build character. They don't. But we hear things so often, it becomes truth to you. Sports builds character. People agree with it, because you've heard it so many times. Prehistoric. People believe it, because you've heard it so many times. Maybe it's time we start thinking before we just believe everything we're told and everything that we read or hear. Here in McGraw Hill, you need to watch for words like this. Believe, may have, might have, perhaps, could have. These are those words that you need to recognize. Here we see that uh, this guy was digging on a place there in Shota, Montana, when he stumbled upon the new dinosaur species. When it goes on and it says it belongs to a dinosaur family that most scientists believe are the ancestors of birds. Up here in the left corner, it may also have had feathers. That's how things can be written as theories. But again, when you teach your children to recognize those words, might have, possibly, maybe, could have, should have, that's not science then. All right? There's a difference. It's not observable. This is their worldview interpreting the data. The data is science. The worldview, not. Now, keep in mind, Christians are in the same boat. I'm bringing in this worldview When I look at that data, you know what that worldview is called? Faith. Whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, everybody has faith. It's just a matter of which faith is the best faith to have faith in. But everybody, Christians or non, bring in faith to the science classroom. The only difference is we're not allowed to have faith. They can, but we can't. Why? For no other reason then their faith says there is no God. Bottom line. How about the Grand Canyon? You know, two people can look at the same canyon and come up with two very different interpretations of the canyon. Why? Because of that faith, that worldview that we bring in. This textbook says over millions of years, the Colorado River carved out the Grand Canyon from solid rock. Well, the fact is that you can look, there is indeed a canyon there. And that that canyon has many layers of sedimentary rock in it. That's science. Those are the facts. But now those same scientific facts are going to be interpreted by your worldview. If you are a creationist, you're going to say, I believe that canyon formed quickly by a lot of water and a little bit of time. 
basically Noah's flood very fast. But on the other side, the evolutionists are going to say it formed slowly millions of years with a lot of time and a little water called the Colorado River. Over and over, this is what the textbooks tell us, the Colorado River cut through the weathered rock and carried away sediment. Over millions of years, this erosion formed the canyon. Now, does that sound like somebody was actually there and got to see this happen over millions of years? It does, doesn't it? But we know that's not true. That's not a scientific fact, but it's being presented as such. Here we see, if you would build a dam across the Grand Canyon, do you know that there are lakes the size of many states that would build up behind it? Do you know that secular science even tells us that those lakes were there? Secular science says that that used to be covered in water. That's interesting. You know, when you have a big rain, you have mud puddles left afterwards, right? So if you have, say, a big rain called Noah's Flood, what's going to be left over? Big mud puddles called Minnesota, right? Lakes everywhere. Actually, a lot of those are ice age, but the bottom line, you get the picture. Lakes of water are going to be left behind like Lake Missoula and many others around the world. So we would expect to see this huge lakes the size of many states. They're not really able to explain adequately why this is there. Not only that, but they have named these lakes Grand Lake and Hopi Lake. If you just dam up the Grand Canyon. This is a satellite photo of the Grand Canyon. What I want you to see is the snow. The snow line gives you the story. It's a raised elevation higher up. The mountain that the Grand Canyon cuts through is 6,900 to 8,500 feet. The river enters the canyon at 2,800 feet. It leaves at 1,800 feet, and it goes for about 270 miles. Do you see a problem here? You see, when I went to school, I was taught that rivers will go around mountains, not up and over them. How does a river that is at 2,800 feet get to that 8,000-foot level to start eroding it away? It doesn't make sense. Water doesn't go uphill. So the very geography of the Grand Canyon says that there's no way the Colorado River carved out the Grand Canyon. It doesn't work that way. Instead, what we believe happened here is there was a huge dam break. We already know that they say there was water behind the Grand Canyon. Where'd it go? Slowly over millions of years through the Colorado River? No. I'm going to propose to you that the Colorado River is there because of a dam break. And now the Colorado River is there because it's the lowest spot. As a matter of fact, if you look on a map, if you look just about anywhere, you're going to see that rivers always enter at what are called acute angles, less than 90 degrees, little Ys that are on any map. Look at it. That's how rivers form. That's the natural aspect of how water flows. Now, if a dam breaks, however, the water can't rush through all at once, so you've got all these currents going in different directions. And when that happens you get what are called barbed canyons that go in all different directions. 
That is exactly what we see at the Grand Canyon. On one side of the Grand Canyon, the exit side, we see these little Y acute angles in rivers. But on the other side, we see all these barbed canyons, just like what we see when there is a dam break. So we as Christians believe that there was a dam break. That water that was behind the Grand Canyon, probably right after the flood, softer sediments, the ice age possibly as the ice began to melt, that dam broke. And those waters literally rushed through and now it ripped through that mountain. And that we do see. When Mount St. Helens erupted, do you know that it carved... Uh, a few months later, actually, it carved a canyon 140th the scale of the Grand Canyon in one afternoon. It doesn't take millions of years. It takes a catastrophe, something quick. So do you suppose Noah's flood then could do that? Absolutely. Noah's flood is what caused the Grand Canyon to form. This textbook says, several million years ago, the movement of tectonic plates pushed up the layers of rocks. This formed what is called the Colorado Plateau. As the rocks rose higher, the slope of the Colorado River became steeper, and its water flowed faster. In other words, what they're telling you is this. The reason that the the Colorado River is way down here is because this lifted up. The waters didn't go up and over the mountain. That's their explanation. However, there is a lot of scientific geological problems with this explanation. So many problems. Where are the soil layers in the Grand Canyon? They're not there. That tells us that all of these layers were laid down quickly. Not slowly over millions of years. Among other scientific problems. This is not an uplift of why that river is there. Just like at Mount St. Helens. It wasn't because slowly over millions of years a river carved out a canyon. It's because a mud flow ripped through forming a canyon. And now the river is there because the canyon was formed by a rapid flood. The Bible tells us this. Thou didst cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down, and God set a boundary those waters should never pass again. I talk about this in my pre-flood world presentation, that to get rid of the floodwaters, God caused the mountains to rise up and to sink down. We do agree with uplift. We do know that that happens. It forms mountains, and the waters rush out. But that's why we see the rivers and where they go. Uh, Michael Ord, Dr. Michael Ord has uh, done a DVD on the Missoula flood. And you can see and trace where these waters went from those huge dams all the way to the ocean, geologically. So yes, we believe in the uplift. We believe that happened, but that's not how the Colorado River formed. Because like I said, there's many other problems here. But as you can see, the same evidence can be interpreted differently by believing the Bible to be true. Noah's flood was a catastrophe. But this textbook says, catastrophism is the idea that conditions and organisms on earth change in quick, violent events. As I said, like Noah's flood. But look what then it says. 
scientists eventually disagreed with catastrophism because Earth's history is full of violent events. What? We disagreed with it because we see that it happens. Let me really tell you what they're saying. We disagree with catastrophism because that would point us to the Bible and Noah's flood and we won't allow ourselves to go there. That's what it's saying between the lines, isn't it? The whole idea of geology for a creationist is catastrophism. Noah's flood, the Ice Age, judgments. And Noah's flood, that's a pretty big catastrophe that would give us the things we see throughout the world in geology. Here it says this, uniformitarianism. The principle of uniformitarianism states that geological processes that occur today are similar to those that have occurred in the past. In other words, whatever we're observing today going on has been going on for millions of years. That's uniformitarianism. Well, there's all kinds of problems with that. We talk about that in our DVD on the dating methods, and we'll talk a little bit more about it. But for now, I want you to see this. This is a picture from Mount St. Helens. All of these layers were deposited not over millions of years of uniformitarianism, slowly gathering. But you can see three distinct layers there, can't you? That first one was deposited on May 18th of 1980 when Mount St. Helens erupted. The next one, that was deposited uh, just a, a couple of months later. And the one on top of that, almost two years later. Three separate catastrophic events from the same volcano. Because when you have an earthquake, you have aftershocks. When you have a volcano explode, it's got smaller rumblings and smaller explosions for months to years afterwards. When you have Noah's flood, you're going to have a big one, and then after that, the earth is going to restabilize. You know, there would be all kinds of earthquakes and volcanoes because of the earth splitting. And so you're going to have a period of that restabilization of the earth where you're going to have catastrophic deposition. Just like what was laid down here at Mount St. Helens, that's what we see in the Grand Canyon. That's what we see throughout the world. Catastrophic erosion. Look at this in our parks. Our textbooks look at this and they say, this is Colorado River or other rivers just slowly over long periods of time eroding this away. Here is some more millions of years of erosion in our state parks. Millions of years, they say, for this to happen. Here is some more millions of years of erosion. Here's some more erosion. Millions of years? Or maybe just one night of rain on a dirt pile. But notice it looks the very same as some of these other ones in our state parks. Just on a bigger scale in our state park. You ever watch Mythbusters? If they ever have some great experiment to do, what do they do? They take and do the same thing on a small scale because what works on a small scale works on a big scale. So if we see this on a small scale, then if you have Noah's flood, shouldn't you expect what we see in our parks? Absolutely. So it's not millions of years of erosion. 
it is catastrophic events on a large scale of Noah's flood. Even here along a roadside, you have evidence of erosion that looks just like that in our state parks. But again, our textbooks say the Colorado River has cut through layer upon layer of rocks over millions of years. I believe that that is a lie. Now, maybe not a complete lie, but it's certainly misleading where the information takes us when we see the problems of uniformitarianism and catastrophism doesn't happen. You know, a good example of this as well is the island of Circe. You ever hear about Circe? Circe is just kind of not too far from Iceland. It's an island here. And back in 1963, it is an island that formed by volcanic eruptions and whatnot. 1963. A brand new island. Now, I suppose after millions of years, this island is going to grow trees and have canyons form from rivers and stuff like that, right? Well, those things do happen, just not in millions of years, because this is a picture of Circe today. Yeah, it didn't take a long time for this to happen. You have canyons and trees and animals and all of those things there already at Circe. Doesn't take a long time. Here we see new scientists reported in 2007 that geographers marvel that canyons, gullies, and other land features that typically, allegedly, take tens of thousands of millions of years to form were created in less than a decade. Doesn't take a long time. How about some lessons in interpretation? Creation science evangelism used to talk about this, where there was a calf and basically being born. And to illustrate this, he says, you've got to use a calf puller. A calf puller, you can see here, illustrated up against this fence. And up against the fence is what they stick on the rear end of the mother. Then there's a cable that goes down, and it ties to the feet of the calf sticking out of the mother. Well, one day, there was a farmer pulling a calf with one of these things. As a city guy was driving along, he thought, what is this guy doing with that cow? Well, the farmer notices this because he pulled over and he invites him over to take a look. Well, he says, have you ever seen this? He said, never. Well, do you have any questions? He said, yeah. How fast do you figure that calf was going when it ran into the back of that thing? It's the same evidence, but it's being interpreted differently, isn't it? And that's why we have to look at lessons of interpretation because it is our worldview, our belief system that we bring into the classroom that comes up with an interpretation. You want to know how we got into this mess? 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-6 through six, tells us, You must understand that in the last days scoffers will come scoffing, following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, and by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Do you hear what he's saying? In the last days. 
Everybody's excited about what's going to be like in the end. What's going to happen? Peter's saying, look, in the last days, scoffers are going to come. People who are going to make fun of God, His Word, and Noah's flood. Because what does it say? Look, they're going to say everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Do you know in science there's a term for this? It's called uniformitarianism. That's a word that I showed you in our textbooks earlier. Uniformitarianism, the key being the present is the key to the past. What we see happening today has always been going on. No, the present is not the key to the past. The Bible is the key to the past. But these scoffers are going to say that. Do you know that this idea has been made popular only since the mid-19th century? And yet today it's a foundation of science. But God said in the last days that was going to happen. Second thing that's going to happen in the last days, people are going to deliberately forget, deliberately deny. What? Noah's flood. Do you know only in the last 60 to 70 years has Noah's flood been widely rejected? Even many Christians are now saying, Noah's flood wasn't a global flood. Yet, Jesus is saying, in the last days, that's what people are going to say. Well, let me show you one of these scoffers. His name was James Hutton. He lived in the 1700s, and he wrote a book called The Theory of Earth. And he began to propose that the earth was much older than what the Bible had proposed. In other words, he was challenging the authority of Scripture. Because when he's alive here in the late 1700s, let me show you what's going on in society. This was a time of revolutions. We've got the Polish, the American, French, Spanish, Italian, and German revolutions going on at this time. The attitude of society was this. If it's an authority, rebel against it. Well, guess what was an authority at that time? in the late 1700s, in society. The Bible. The Bible was an authority, and so he was going to rebel against that authority. Look at what this textbook says. Before radiometric dating was available, many people had estimated the age of the earth to be only a few thousand years old. But then James Hutton in the 1700s came along and came up with this idea called uniformitarianism, Processes occurring today are similar to those that occurred in the past. So he inferred and hypothesized that what he was observing has been the same for hundreds of thousands of years. Well, thousands of years in his case, much more than the Bible. Again, challenged the authority. This textbook even says here, he thought that erosion caused by streams such as shown here in figure one, could also wear down mountains, just like they're saying the Colorado River did. Again, uniformitarianism is not the key to the past. The Bible is the key to the past. Sir Charles Lyell was influenced by James Hutton. Now, Lyell is a name that many people are familiar with. A lawyer, not a scientist, a lawyer. Here he is. He wrote this book called Principles of Geology in 1830. Now, in this book, Principles of Geology, 
He just took James Hutton's idea and he built upon it. Look what he said. That there were false conclusions, futile reasoning, ancient doctrines, speaking of the Bible, sanctioned by the implicit faith of many generations and supposed to rest on scriptural authority. That gives you an idea of what he thought about the Bible, doesn't it? What's going on in his mind. So, remember, everybody has to bring in a worldview into their classroom. You can see what worldview he's bringing in to interpret the evidence. He also said that this guy remarked how much the interests of religion as well as those of sound philosophy had suffered by perpetually mixing up the sacred writings with questions in physical science. He reasoned philosophically against those who regarded the disordered state of Earth's crust as exhibiting signs of the wrath of God for the sins of man. In other words, Noah's flood. I reject Noah's flood as why I see these things. Not because these things pointed against Noah's flood, but because his belief system didn't like a wrath-filled God. Therefore, I refuse to see what the evidence points to. He goes on and he says, Men of superior talent, like himself, who thought for themselves and were not blinded by authority, like the Bible, he was going to free science from Moses. Let me ask you, who wrote Genesis? Moses. Jesus even says that. Moses compiled Genesis, didn't he? Yeah. And he was going to free science from Moses. You might say this, I'm going to kick Genesis out of science. I'm going to kick the flood out of science. The book that tells us the most about why the world should be the way it is Now you can't talk about it. 5 plus 5, it's not 10. You can't talk about 10. Look at this. In his book, he has what is called the geological column. Now the geological column is like the Bible for an evolutionary geologist. The geological column basically shows all these different layers of the earth. And each layer is given a name, an age, and an index fossil. This highlighted one shows you the Jurassic Age. It's about 150 million years old, you can see. And then there are some fossils, an index fossil there. You can see a plesiosaur. What that means is if you found a fossilized plesiosaur out in your lawn, they would automatically date your lawn 150 million years old. Why? Because that fossil's there. That's when that creature lived. That's what's called an index fossil. You date that layer of your lawn based on what lived in it or was buried in it. Now, there's some problems with this. Now, oftentimes in our textbooks, you're going to see this geological column laid out horizontally, vertically, many different ways. Now, the interesting part, though, is that the only place you see the geological column is in those textbooks or in our museums because it does not exist anywhere in the entire world. No geological... What? Yeah. It's not been found anywhere in the world. It's only in our textbooks and museums. Look, this textbook here even says, 
If there were such a column of sediments, unfortunately, no such column exists. It's not there. 80 to 85% of the Earth's land surface doesn't even have three geological periods coming together in the consecutive order. But it's almost like we're taught to believe that, wow, if I just keep digging, you're going to go through one layer, down to another, to another. It's not like that at all. Not even in the Grand Canyon. This book here shows you that you have five of the 12 geological layers in the Grand Canyon. Zooming in on it a little bit, you can see the cross-hatched areas are assumed time gaps. There's a lot of cross-hatched sections there, aren't there? Do you know that, according to what they say, if the geological column actually existed, it would be a hundred miles thick? The geological column, the Bible for an evolutionary geologist, is a fraud. It doesn't work. They admit, we don't see it. They're taking pieces from here, pieces from here, pieces from here, and they put this together in a nice little worldview order, but that's not science. So we need to do some lessons in circular reasoning here as well. Because our textbooks tell us how these dating methods work, that you date fossils by layers and layers by fossils. That's what the textbooks are saying here. As a matter of fact, you can go to a museum, and I challenge you to do this. Don't take my word for it. Please, do it yourself. Go to a museum and go ask one of the people that work there, go over to find a fossil, and ask them, how do you know that this fossil here is 70 million years old? You know what they're going to tell you? Well, because of the layer that that fossil was found in. That layer is this old. Then go over, take the same man, and now go over where they show the layers, because that's going to be there too, and ask them, how do you know that this layer is 100 million years old? Or whatever. And they're going to say, well, because of the fossils we found in it. Remember those index fossils? Now, I hope you're confused by this. Which is right. The rocks are dating the layers, and the layers are dating the rocks. This is called circular reasoning. And honest evolutionists understand that there is a problem with this. Look what some of them say. The intelligent layman has long suspected circular reasoning in the use of rocks to date fossils and fossils to date rocks. Or the geologist has never bothered to think of a good reply feeling the explanations aren't worth the trouble as long as the work brings results. In other words, as long as you're believing it, why change it? You're buying into it. We can't abandon this whole system. This guy says, apart from very modern examples, which are really archaeology, I can think of no cases of radioactive decay being used to date fossils. It's not the decay methods, the radioactive decay. That's not dating them. As a matter of fact, this guy says radiometric dating wouldn't even be feasible if the geological column had not been erected first. What's that mean? You can't even use the dating methods unless that column is there. I'll tell you what he's saying. Let's say I find a rock that I want to get dated. I had 
to have to take painstaking care to make sure that the rock I pick up has never been near water because water will leach in and leach out elements in the rock. So that's one problem with the dating methods. Uh, you think Noah's flood could contaminate that rock maybe? Yeah. But there are other problems. Let's say I take that rock, I send it into a lab, and I say, uh, I'd like to date this rock. They're going to call me up and say, uh, Mr. Young, where'd you get this rock? I'll say, uh, hmm, you know, I don't remember. Well, they're going to say, well, we can't date your rock. Why not? Well, I need to tell them how old my rock is before they can tell me how old my rock is. Same scenario. Mr. Young, where'd you get this rock? Oh, I found it south of town in a limestone layer. I just told them how old my rock was. Because they have already, according to their worldview of evolution, dated these layers. I told them what layer it was found in. I gave them a date. Now they'll take that rock back. They're going to date it. Any rock that does not fit or any date that does not fit that layer is cast out called contaminated or they'll redo it. Up to 80% of the dates are cast out. Now, does that sound like good science to you? Yeah, me either. This sounds like a lot of assumptions have to be applied to the science in order to get what you want the science to say. So we don't need to be afraid of those dating methods. You can get my DVD that will talk more about that. But this guy says paleontologists cannot operate this way. There is no way simply to look at a fossil and say how old it is unless you know the age of the rocks that it comes from. Here he says the rocks do date the fossils, but the fossils date the rocks more accurately. There's something wrong with that statement, isn't there? How about some lessons in dating fossils? Here's our geological column. Notice there are many different layers, but we have different limestone layers. So how do you tell one limestone layer from another limestone layer? because of the fossils you find in them. That index fossil. Remember I said if you found the plesiosaur, you know your lawn's 150 million years old? Well, let's look at some index fossils here. This textbook says that this is a kind of sea animal that appeared 144 million years ago and went extinct 65 million years ago. So if you found this in your lawn or whatever, then you know it's between 144 million and 65 million years old. Over and over, these are called index fossils, and they are used to compare the ages of rock layers. Well, how do you know how old that fossil is? Because of the layer we found it in. Again, circular reasoning. Clues to the Earth's past. It says finding particular fossils indicates the age of the rock. You see, it just sounds too crazy for you to believe. Surely it's not that simple. Surely Brian is not giving me the whole picture here. It's everywhere in our textbooks. Matter of fact, I was at Princeton speaking there, and we did a walk through the museum, and I had already talked the evening before with this group, and then I was doing a walk through at the museum. And uh, in the museum there, they had this guy working on fossils, you know, behind the glass and everything like that, because, you know, that glass is very important to keep that, uh, you know, clean or whatever. And anyway, he's working behind there, and I asked him, I said, how old is this? You know, how do you know this? And when he answered the way that I told them that this is how it's happening, everybody at one time just looked at me. 
And they got like 20 people just looking at me immediately. And the guy's like, I'm being set up for something here. Don't believe me. Go ask. Do this yourself. Ask these questions. Don't just believe things because you're being told. Question. And you'll see. Here's an index fossil called a trilobite. A trilobite is something that is about five to 600 million years old. So if you find a trilobite in your church lawn, they're going to say that your church lawn, this ground that you built on, is five to 600 million years old because that fossil lives there or did at one time. Blowing this up, it says trilobite fossils make good index fossils. If one like this is found in the rock layer, it probably formed five to 600 million years ago. I did a debate at St. Cloud University, and the guy I was debating, uh, the whole debate was basically, what is science? And I said that evolution isn't even a theory, according to the definition. Because according to the definition of the scientific method, a theory must be falsifiable. You have to be able to prove it false. And I said, therefore, it cannot fit. Evolution can't fit the definition of a theory, because it's not falsifiable. He says, what do you mean it's not falsifiable? I said, well, let me make it simple for you. What could we find that would prove evolution false? He says, well, if we found a trilobite and a human together, that would show that evolution was false. I said, great, the debate's over. Because here is a picture of a human footprint on top of a trilobite showing that while this ground was soft and the trilobite alive, that they were together. He said, where's a shoe print? I don't see a shoe print. Well, you can see the stitching in the sole of the shoe. Well, where'd that come from? I said, well, Utah Geological Survey showed that this was accurate. It's not a fake. I don't see it. I don't see a shoe print. I said, thank you for proving my point. You can't falsify evolution. Because no matter what we find, you won't believe it anyway. You will explain it away to fit your worldview. That's why it is not a theory. Because you can't prove evolution false. No matter what we find, doesn't matter. Not only that, but do you know that Trilobites have a very sophisticated eye, a very complex eye that allowed it to adjust to see and accommodate for refraction of light in water and all of those kinds of things. It is a complex eye. Yet this is one of the first things to have ever evolved. That doesn't make sense. This is supposed to be an extremely simple creature, and yet it's anything but simple. Not only that, but do you know that trilobites are still alive? Yeah. There are articles that we'll call... But By the way, they don't call them trilobites. They look like trilobites, but we don't call them trilobites because trilobites are extinct. So we'll call them something else instead. But clearly, they have been found alive. In our museum, we have a sign that talks about them finding these trilobites and what they call them. We call these things living fossils. Something that clearly has been unchanged, but they give it a different name as a propaganda tool to make it seem like things have changed by giving it a different name. 
In New York, they have the state fossil called the graptolite. Now, did you know a graptolite is an index fossil for things 325 million years old? Yeah, all the way up to 410 million years old. Did you know, though, that we found the graptolite still alive in the early 90s? Still alive. How can it be an index fossil? Again, if you found a graptolite in your, fo- uh, your church lawn, fossilized, they would say, oh, your church lawn is 400 million years old. But yet, they're growing around the corner. Or lobed fin fish, like the coelacanth. The coelacanth is an index fossil of things that are 325 to 410 million years old as well. You find this in your lawn, you know how old it is. However, in 1993, we found these things swimming in the oceans. And since then, have found many more. This lady wrote a book called A Fish Caught in Time, where she says it's our own great uncle 40 million times removed. Yeah, I'd say there's something fishy about that. It doesn't make sense, but again, this is what our textbooks keep telling us. These are index fossils, but yet they're still alive. They can't be index fossils. There's something wrong with your theory. This is indeed a lie. It's not true. We also have dinosaurs in this geological column. They're saying they're 65, 70 million years old. So again, you find a dinosaur bone, you know, wow, at least 65 million years old, depending on the dinosaur here, right? Well, you know what's interesting to me is that we have found dinosaur bones many times now, and the blood cells are still in the dinosaur bones. Blood cells lasting 65 million years, do you really believe that that's possible? There is no way organic material could last 65 million years. No way. It's still stretchy, tendons and things like that. Mosquitoes even have been found with blood cells in them. Now, what they're saying is, well, it was probably deposited in a very iron-rich solution. Because they have taken this iron-rich solution and they've gotten blood cells to last like two years. Wow. (laughs) You only have 69,900,000? No. Two years is a far cry. And by the way, the solution that they make is not natural. I would say instead that this thing died in a more recent past at the time of the flood. How about lessons and layers then? Again, looking at this, you see that each layer is representing different periods of history. Why then do we have things called polystrate fossils, which go through hundreds of millions of years in some cases of layers? Do you really believe a tree would grow through hundreds of thousands of years, or it would stay there for hundreds of thousands of years while the dirt piled up on top of it without it decaying? We don't observe that happening today. No, this speaks of burial, rapid burial. Here's a 30-foot petrified tree in Tennessee. The top and the bottom are in different coal seams. Coal is supposed to take millions of years to form. That can't happen. So in spite of the fact that the geological column does not exist, except for in our textbook, It has changed people's worldview away from catastrophism and more towards 
uniformitarianism. And these trees, you know, you can go to Yellowstone Park, they have something called Specimen Ridge, and they have trees that they say there are 27 different layers of forests that grew over millions of years, over 50 million years, but thousands of years apart. Steve Austin, he defended his PhD dissertation. He actually took core samples of trees from the top, the middle, and the bottom and showed that they have similar tree ring patterns, showing these didn't grow hundreds of thousands of years apart. Instead, it's probably exactly what we see at Mount St. Helens. At Mount St. Helens, there were all kinds of trees, over a million logs deposited on that lake of Spirit Lake. And in the first decade, over half of them disappeared. Where'd they go? Well, as they were floating on the lake, one end would get waterlogged, and it began to float in an upright position. And then what happens is it would sink to the bottom. Different logs fall at different times, just like if you go there today, there's still some logs there. But in the first 10 years, half of them disappeared. They even took sonar and showed on the bottom of the lake there's over 50,000 logs in an upright position at the bottom of Spirit Lake. When they scuba dived down in there, they were able to see that some you could wiggle because they haven't been buried for very long. Others you could tip over and still others were buried deeply into the dirt already, showing they fall at different times in different strata layers. If you would drain Spirit Lake, it would almost look like a forest there, wouldn't it? yet in different layers, exactly what we see at Specimen Ridge in Yellowstone Park. That at Noah's Flood, you had all these trees that were floating on the waters. They stayed there as they got caught in different areas, and then they would get upright, fall down to the bottom, and leave Specimen Ridge in different layers of rock sediment. Because your only other option is that the trees either grew through all of these layers of dirt or the trees stood upright for millions of years while the sediment layers formed around them. Those are your two options. Or there's a third way to look at this. The trees were buried upright in a big flood. Kind of the same question that we asked before. How fast was that calf going when it ran into the back of that thing? It's the same evidence interpreted in a different way, a different world view. That's all. So those layers are not millions and billions and thousands of years apart. How about some lessons in how fossils form? Many times textbooks say that it takes millions of years for fossils to form. Really? Here's a petrified dog and a petrified tree. That gives new meaning to the word tree bark, doesn't it? Yeah. It is not something that took a long period of time. Here's a cowboy leg fossilized in the cowboy boot. The boot manufacturers say the boot was made in about 1950, so we know fossils can form in less than that amount of time. This is a fish giving birth in the fossil record. It got buried so quickly it didn't even have time to finish having its baby. You see, this speaks of rapid deposition. But what do the evolutionists always say why we see fossils? Oh, something you know, fell into a lake or it gets caught in a mud hole or whatever. No, this speaks of rapid burial, something Noah's flood would do. Here is a felt hat that's now a hard hat in less than 50 years. 
We even have a petrified flower sack from a flood in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. So fossils form quickly, not millions of years. So if our textbooks say that, we can say lie. How about some lessons from Darwin? We, we talked about James Hutton influencing Charles Lyell. Well, guess who influenced Darwin? Charles Lyell. Fresh out of school at the age of 22, Darwin got a job collecting bugs on the HMS Beagle by this zoologist who was going to basically, he wanted him to collect bugs and just be a companion on the boat. Now, a lot of people don't realize that Darwin was going to be a preacher when he was younger. But he was a terrible student. He flunked out of school. He wasn't a good student. But he got this job, so he went. Now, when he went on this boat, he took two books with him. Any guesses what they might have been? I gave you some hints earlier. One of them was the Bible, and the other one, Charles Lyell's book, Principles of Geology. When he read that book, Principles of Geology, this is what he said in a letter about that book. Disbelief crept over me about the Bible on a very slow rate, but at last complete. The rate was so slow that I felt no distress. Isn't that something? Disbelief over the Scriptures crept over him so slowly that he just had to look back one day and realize how far he had fallen. And let me tell you, that's exactly what's happening to our kids, our grandkids, as they go to these schools and they're having evolution pushed down their throat without being able to answer what 5 plus 5 truthfully is. And disbelief creeps over them so slow, they're not distressed by it, they're not concerned, they don't even realize it's happening until one day they graduate, they go off to college, and their grandparents come to me and say, yeah, my grandchild, they don't go to church anymore. They used to all the time, but not anymore. Why? What happened? They just don't believe anymore. You see, Satan knows. He's subtle, and he he works slowly by planting seeds of doubt. That's what he did in the Garden of Eden. The first thing he did is he planted seeds of doubt in Eve's mind. Did God really say? Now, I don't know if all of these... I, I have a tendency to believe that maybe there was some conversations that went on prior to the day that she ate of that fruit. I don't know. But she had seeds of doubt planted into her mind about God's Word. And that's what these professors are doing to their students today. We'll talk about that in another presentation. And then later he says, oh, you're not going to die. He calls God a liar. Oh, the earth isn't young. Noah's flood never happened. Your Bible is wrong. Well, Darwin went to these Galapagos Islands, and when he went there, he saw all these varieties of finches, and he saw some had big beaks, and he saw some had little beaks, and he thought, evolution! He began to propose this idea that they change, they evolve, which, by the way, is the definition of evolution. We're going to talk about that. Big deal, I agree with that. The problem is, in Darwin's day, people believed that species were fixed. In other words... A Great Dane would always be a Great Dane. They didn't realize that you can cross different species to get another species of animal. Labradoodles, right? If you can call that a dog. 
But because of the belief of the culture that species were fixed, he saw these different ones and he thought, wow. And he came up with this idea then of evolution. Fourteen varieties of finches he observed, drew pictures of them and all of those kind of things. He came back and he wrote a book called The Origin of Species. Now, by the way, that is not the full title of his book. Did you know that? Yeah, it's kind of funny because if you ever watch History Channel, Discovery Channel, or anytime they're talking about Darwin's book, they always kind of pan across the book, Origin of Species. Stop! Don't want to show you anymore. You don't want to see the full title of his book. Because the full title of the book is this, Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the struggle for life. Can I ask you, which one's the favored race? Well, you see, they don't want you to understand that Darwin was racist and that the theory of evolution is very racist. Now, I'm not saying there aren't Christians that are racist either, but what I'm saying is evolution has a racist foundation. And the very teaching logically points to the what? Inferior or superior race. If you're an evolutionist, by very definition of what evolution teaches, you have to be racist. You have to say some are better than others. Now, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, I'd say no. Are there genetic differences? Absolutely. But nobody is worth more or less in Jesus' eyes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Well, Darwin, in his book, said this, It's a truly wonderful fact that all animals and all plants throughout all time and space should be related to each other. You are related to a squash, a banana, a peach, an apple, a tree shrew. All plants and animals are related to each other. It's a truly wonderful fact. Fact, even, right? Well, Darwin was misunderstanding the evidence because his worldview was being allowed to interpret the evidence. He saw all these different finches, just like we see all these different dogs today. I have a canardly. I don't know if you've ever seen a canardly dog. You can hardly tell what it is. All kinds of species come from the original dog kind. That's what the Bible says a kind is. It's a big dog and a little dog, but they're still dogs, aren't they? Do you know that I have shown this to many, many kids? Again, some of these slides I'm taking from creation science evangelism years ago. I've adapted some, but bottom line is, when I ask kids to take this test, A, B, C, D, which one does not belong? Do you know I haven't even found a kindergartner yet that fails this test? What do you think? A, B, C, D. Which one doesn't belong? Yeah, they all say D. They all get kindergartners can tell which one doesn't belong. But yet all these evolutionists are, what's a kind? What's a kind? Something it can reproduce after itself. A dog is a dog. But evolution is always saying, look at this dog and look at that dog. Look at this frog and look at that frog. Look at this fish and this fish. Guess what? Still a fish, still a dog, still a cat, still a horse, still its original kind of animal. That's the difference. 
Nobody would say that this banana is related to those dogs. But yet, what did Darwin say? It's a wonderful fact, all plants and animals. Now, when you corner an evolutionist about that, we, we're not saying you came from a banana, really. Corner them. Just kind of keep taking it back. Okay, you say we came from you know, primates, right? But what before that? Going to go all the way back to the tree shrew. Okay, what before the tree shrew? Keep pushing them back and back and back. And not only are you related to a banana, but then you're related to just this pre, pretty simple primordial soup. They do believe that. They just don't want people to think that way reasonably and logically. But they do teach that. A kind is simply something that can reproduce after itself, as Genesis 1 says, the fruit tree yielding fruit after its own kind, the living creature after his kind, and so on. That's how it is. But we have things like the blind cave fish. They live in caves, and after a while, they go blind. They even lose their eye. Can't see. This is evolution. Over millions of years, they lose this. No, it doesn't take millions of years. God has programmed us in our DNA to be able to adapt. That's not evolution. Adaptation is science. You adapt to your environment, but you can only adapt within limits of what is in your DNA. Just like GM, they make cars. Some have heaters and air conditioners, right? They put both things in your car. Why? They don't know. Your car might go to Alaska and never need the air conditioning. It might go to California and never need the heater. But the possibility is there if the environment calls for it. That's the way DNA is. God has created within our DNA the the possibility for long hair, short hair, or no hair. Now, our environments can cause different genes to express themselves. When the fish is in the dark... It can lose that because it doesn't need it. But will that fish ever become a puppy? No, it'll just lose its eye. Now, what's surprising about this blind cave fish is this. Do you know that in one generation, the fish can have its eye back? The blind cave fish can have babies that have eyes and can see in one generation. Shocked evolutionists. Well, why should it? All that's happening is that you're taking and expressing the gene that needs to be there. The gene for the eye is there. So this isn't evolution. It's what the Bible says is supposed to happen. This guy here uh, has done a lot of research on that. I really recommend reading some material by him uh, to get some more information on just how genetics work with the idea of evolution and creation. So let's define the word evolution a little bit, though. Because even the word evolution can mean a lot of different things. Do you know there's a term that I can accept as evolution? Evolution can mean cosmic evolution. The origin of time, space, and matter. The Big Bang. Everything appears from this Big Bang. I still have to ask, what blew up? Well, an atomic particle. Where did the atomic particle come from? They have no scientific explanation for this at all. Nothing observable, only these wild and crazy theories that actually break laws of science. You also have chemical evolution, the origin of higher elements 
from hydrogen. How did the periodic chart come about? They can't really explain that. We can't observe that happening. They've got all kinds of crazy theories and some that break laws of science again, but you don't have an origin of the periodic table. I did a debate at Wayne State, and this uh, one professor was very mad. He was just shaking angry. And he says, you shouldn't be here. You're taking your religion and your faith, and you're trying to put it off as science. You shouldn't be here. You should just go home. I said, let me ask you something. I said, you guys believe in this atomic particle. They call it the singularity that blew up in the Big Bang, right? Yes. So what do scientists say about where that atomic particle came from? Honestly, thankfully, he said, we don't know. And I said, so what you're telling me is that you're not accepting this then by science, but by faith. He said, yes. I got to give the credit, I have to give the guy credit for being honest. You see, these are faith issues here, not science issues. There's also stellar and planetary evolution, the origin of the stars and planets. How did that happen? They can't tell you. Oh, we see stars forming? No, you don't. You see a ball of gas. You believe that that ball of gas is going to become a star over millions and billions of years. Believing you're seeing a star forming and seeing a star forming are two completely different things. And by the way, the whole idea of how stars form by gases coming together and everything is exactly the opposite of what observational science shows. Gases, they resist compression. They fill empty space. But to get this, you have to have this gas being compressed. So they know that. So this is what they say. Stars form because you have an explosion in a supernova, which a supernova is a star exploding. And that explosion pushes these gases together to create a star. Sounds logical, right? Compression. Wait a minute. Uh, What exploded? Supernova. What's a supernova? A star exploding. So to make stars, you have to have a star? See, that doesn't even make logical sense. How can you have something exploding to make your something? Doesn't make sense. But we have to ask questions. We have to think this through. Ask yourself, is this observable? No, it is not. There are so many stars that... And every person on earth could own two trillion of them, they estimate. That is a lot of stars. And yet, every one of those supposedly came about by explosions and gases compressing and breaking laws of science. It is simply not true. You also have organic evolution, the origin of life. How did life come about? They can't answer that. They got all these crazy ideas again, breaking laws of science, a law of biogenesis, or panspermia that aliens brought it here. All of them, I should say, none of them answer the question. That's not observable. If it all happens that way, great. Here, you say it forms in water. Here's a bottle of water. Take it back to your lab. Make life for me. Well, you need these hydro vents. Well, good. Go create one in your lab in the heat. Go make life for me. They can't because it's not observable. It's not science. The Bible tells me where life came from, by the way. There is an answer in that book. God himself gives all men life and breath 
and everything else. We have macroevolution, which is changing from one thing into another, a dinosaur turning into a bird. No observation of that. But again, it's changing from one kind to another. And then you have something called microevolution. Now, technically, creationists aren't using that word microevolution anymore because they say micro means small. So small changes, which we agree with, but it gives the impression that if you have a small change here, a small change there, a million small changes makes one big change. So given enough time, a lot of small changes means a dinosaur can turn into a bird. While that's really not what microevolution means, microevolution is simply this, variety among a species. Cross a couple of dogs, you get a different kind of dog or a different species of dog, not a kind. No big deal. We see that happening. It is observable. So ultimately, out of all of these ideas of evolution, only one is scientific. These first five are non-observable religious beliefs. Only this last one is science because it is observable. And you know what's interesting? It fits with what the Bible says. But evolutionists all the time, they're finding a, a chimpanzee that has longer fingers or shorter fingers, and they're, oh, evolution, you creationists are wrong. I'm like, wait a minute, we've been saying that that's supposed to happen. That's called microevolution. Variation among a species. I expect monkeys to have smaller fingers or longer fingers. You would expect that monkey to be a complete different kind of animal. That's the difference. We observe our theory, our faith. They do not observe theirs. They only observe ours. You have the Big Bang. Textbooks will tell you about 18 to 20 billion years ago, all the matter in the universe was concentrated in a very dense, hot region that was much smaller than a period on this page. And this explosion was called the Big Bang. Well, again, what blew up? But 4.6 billion years ago, the earth cooled down and formed a rocky crust. And then look, when the ancient earth started melting, something much like this happened. The densest materials sank and formed the innermost layer of the earth. Again, who saw that? Nobody. But it goes on. As the earth formed, the earth's surface was hot. And there were large pools of bubbling lava, just like the Bible says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty. Right? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the hot pools of bubbling lava. It's the exact opposite of what Scripture says. The Bible says everything started as water. Evolution has everything starting as magma. Completely different views. So people who want to say, oh, evolution, God just used evolution as his way of creating things. No, everything's backwards. Fish and birds, the sun, the Bible says, isn't created until the fourth day. Evolution has the sun here millions and billions of years before the earth. None of it makes sense. You have to choose which one. You can't believe in both because then you become an idiot in both worlds. Choose this day whom you will follow. Oceans formed as it rained on the rocks for millions of years. Whoa, 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 time out. Have you been able to pick up on some things that have been skipped here? Yeah, you see, the earth formed. Whoa, whoa, 
where did all those elements come from? Big Bang, oh, well, where did that atomic particle come from? You see, they, just in a couple of paragraphs of your textbook, are going through billions of years of history and not even telling you one evidence of how any of it could have happened. Even breaking laws of science, but expecting you to gullibly accept it as truth. And now, oceans, water is forming. And not only that, millions of years of torrential rains cause all this together to form big oceans where swirling in the waters of the ocean is a bubbling broth of complex chemicals. We went from simple chemicals to complex chemicals, but they neglected some reason to tell us how. It goes on. Progress from a complex chemical soup to a living organism is very slow. Indeed it is. It's completely stopped. It doesn't happen. This one says the first self-replicating systems must have emerged in this organic soup. Whoa, time out. We went from complex chemicals to what? Living organisms? Life came about. Oh, but notice they neglected to tell us how life happened. They are skipping some major explanations here. brought a picture of my grandpa here with Grandpa Campbell in that organic soup, apparently. But this is what they're expecting us to believe. They're skipping all this information. Another thing that they do is they do something called bait and switch. They bait you with truth, switch it to a lie. For example here, okay, by the way, this is illegal in advertising. Okay, you get fined for this. You could get sued. But yet we do it in textbooks all the time and it's okay. They bait you with something truth and then switch it to a lie. As an example here, evolution, what is it defined as? Change over time. Well, I agree with that. But then it goes on and it says, in other words, there's no doubt that living things have changed over time. Well, again, I can even agree with that. However, there's a limit. What do you mean by this? How much change are we talking are we talking macroevolution, where a dinosaur turns into a bird? Or are we saying you can cross two dogs to get a different species of dog? Or are we talking long fingers and short fingers? There's a difference. Here it says evolution can be defined as a change in species over time. Again, I agree. Two different species of dogs but not outside of the dog kind. The real meaning of evolution is then slipped in as the students are continuing to read. They're led to believe that the Big Bang, which we said was cosmic evolution, organic evolution, you know, life coming about, all happened. And if you object to this, somehow you're told, oh, you just don't understand science. Or we don't have time to talk about that today. Stop questioning the teacher or you're going to the principal's office. What they really mean by evolution is macroevolution over long periods of time. Here it says the central question of the Chicago conference was whether the mechanisms underlying microevolution can be extrapolated to explain the phenomena of macroevolution. At the risk of doing violence to the positions of such a people at the meeting, the answer can be given as a clear no. That was decided way back in 1980, and I'll tell you something. 
Nothing more has changed from a scientific perspective. The only thing that has changed is a philosophical religious one which says, I'll believe it regardless, even though we don't see it happening. There are genetic barriers that prevent one species of animal becoming a different kind of animal. No one has ever seen a dog produce a non-dog, have you? Have you ever had a litter of pups and you go, whoa, there's a kitten in there? No. There are genetic limitations. You have to imagine that it happened long ago. That's a religion, not science. And even if it did have a kitten in your litter, who's it going to mate with? So we're going to have some lessons in kinds here. New evidence shows Darwin didn't like Lyell's view that animals could not change from one kind into another. Did you know that? On page 442 of Volume 2 of Principles of Geology, next to where Lyell said that they were defined limits, which is what I've been telling you, to variation from the original type, Darwin wrote, if this were true, adios theory. If there are limits to what can happen, then my theory is wrong. You know what we've discovered today with DNA? There's a limit. You can only play with the toys that are in your toy box. It's that simple. Pigs, we keep breeding pigs bigger all the time. Are you ever going to be able to breed a pig bigger than Texas? Never. Why? Because there's genetic limitations to how far that pig can get. Cockroaches become resistant to pesticides, but are they ever going to become resistant to a sledgehammer? No, there are limits. No matter what that cockroach would supposedly think, oh, you know, I saw this guy here get crushed on by a shoe. We need a stronger shell, an exoskeleton here, right? No, I don't care how many billions of years you give it, it's never going to get something that hard. They produce the same kind of animal, and that's it. And the information for the variation had to already be in the toy box. No new information is added. In other words, the gene pool of the new variety is more limited than before and less able to adapt to future changes. In other words, chihuahuas, we've bred a lot of genes out of them. They're never going to be Great Danes again. They have lost information. And that's what we see in our toy box. Some toys get broken and they're no longer useful. Genetic information is lost, which is why corn farmers would never really even want to take the corn that they have and take its seed today and then plant it again because the corn that comes from it is inferior. You never get a whale, a tomato, or a hamster on a corn stock. It's just going to be corn. Maybe different sizes of kernels of corn, different colors of kernels of corn, but nonetheless, it is corn. So what they do is they put in fancy terms sometimes, like convergent evolution, which simply is when two things appear to have similar structures, but there's no way they can have a common ancestor. Well, doesn't design make more sense that God can use the same information, like a radius and an ulna? He can use it not only in humans, but in bats and cats and other creatures. Not convergent or divergent evolution. Divergence is that whales and porpoises are more closely related to hippopotamuses than they are to any other species. So close relatives 
but not similar. They call that divergent evolution. Just again, giving it a fancy name doesn't change the facts. But what we see is horses. You can put stripes on, you can leave stripes off. But still a horse kind, isn't it? Here's zebra. And a horse crossed gives you a zorse. Zebra and a donkey, zonkey. But it's still a horse kind. I think it means a horse and a donkey going to give us a honky. <laughs> Not sure, though. Now, bottom line is this. Here's a great example as well. Do you know that we've been breeding faster horses all the time? In the last hundred years, we have shaved off basically four seconds of the speed of horses running around the Kentucky Derby track. Four seconds in a hundred years. Now, if evolution is true, we're just going to keep going with this. You know, Many changes make great changes. So what we're going to do is I've got something for you to invest in with me, if you would. I just need a little bit more money. We are going to breed a horse that is so fast, we're going to cut 30 seconds off of this speed. I mean, it is going to be fast. Now, they've sold horses for you know, 50, 100 million dollars easy. We ought to be able to sell this for you know, a quarter, you know, maybe 250 million easy. All we have to do is, now we've got to keep this between you and I, okay? We don't want this to get out. We're going to breed wings on the horse and let it fly around the track, okay? Anybody want to invest? Yeah. Why? Because you know that's not in the toy box of a horse. It's that simple. But if evolution is true, we should be investing in those kind of things. But instead, what the Bible says is true. We can only use what's in the toy box. You see, Hutton, he took away the 6,000-year-old earth. Lyell took away the flood. And then Darwin came around, and he took away the Creator. And all three things that we've talked about are false teachings. Millions of years, uniformitarianism, and this macro-evolution. 1 Timothy 6 even warned us about science, falsely so-called, false knowledge. Remember, all wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ Jesus. Adolf Hitler said, if you let me control the textbooks, I'll control the state. You know what? Who's controlling our textbooks today? Is it affecting our children? You bet it is. They're buying into it. People are believing it. Now, this has been years ago in this video, Let My Children Go. They showed 75% of children raised in Christian homes who attend public schools reject the faith by their first year of college. Now, I am not saying that you can't send your kids to a public school. What I'm saying is this. You better be giving them a strong foundation if that's your choice. You better be preparing them for the things that they're going to hear. Well, how about lessons from evidence? Because these are all textbooks that you can see, and all of them supposedly have all kinds of evidence for evolution. So before we get too excited about this evidence, why don't we look to see exactly what it is? First of all, we see evidence from fossils, structure, from molecular biology, evidence from development. And how does this process of evolution even take place? Well, according to this textbook, it is through natural selection. So these are some things that we need to look at to see how you know, good this evidence truly is. There is no scientific evidence, really, to support the evolution theory except for known lies, things that 
clearly have been proven wrong in our textbooks, as I'm going to show you. No matter how numerous they may be, mutations do not produce any kind of evolution. They rearrange existing information, but they don't increase genetic complexity. I mentioned that before with the, the rabbit in a glow-in-the-dark gene. It doesn't increase the complexity. So let's look here. Studies of fossils, comparative anatomy, and embryology provide support for Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection. Now, Darwin did not know about genes, but scientists today know that mutations in genes are the source of variations upon which natural selection acts. In other words, we know, it's a fact now, that by studying genes, we can see evidence of evolution. Well, let's look at these so-called mutations that cause evolution. Here's a mutation. It's a five-legged bull. Now, as you look at this thing, notice no new information is there. It's the same information put in the wrong spot. It's just an extra leg. Now, is this beneficial to this cow? Not at all. As a matter of fact, all it does is takes up energy. There's no muscles attached to it, so it, it can't use it to run. It, it can't even use it as a good kickstand. As a matter of fact, when it does run, all it does is spank itself as it bounces up and down. This is not good for this creature. It is a harmful mutation. That's all it is. Now, here's another mutation. This short-legged sheep. When the wolf comes, who's going to get it? Shorty. He's history, isn't he? Yeah, he's not going to survive. I mean, everybody else is like taking off. He's like, hey guys, wait up. They're not going to make it. So again, no new information. It's a loss of information. That's all it is. But no matter how much that this animal gets chewed up and eaten up, does that mean the rest of them turn into cows? No, it has nothing to do with evolution. It is indeed truly natural selection because naturally the wolf is going to select out that lamb from the herd, short-legged sheep. That's it. It is God's quality control. That's all it is. When something's coming down the assembly line and there's a defect, you want to take it out so that it doesn't get out in the public. It's the same way. When there's a mutation that causes harm, you want to remove it so that its genes aren't passed on. Here's another mutant. It's not ninja, but it is mutant. A two-headed turtle. Now, outside of captivity, this thing cannot survive. I mean, nobody makes a double-neck turtleneck sweater. So it's not going to survive. Now, again, is it a beneficial thing for this turtle to have two heads? No. Uses more energy, can't get its head in the shell. It's the same information, just duplicated. That is not evolution. If you look at it this way, from the words in evolution, you can get words like love, tone, loan, it, but you can't get things like lovely, phone, bone, or bit because you have to add letters like the P or the B to get these things. And therefore, this is an example of how our genes work. You can't add, as I said, more toys into the toy box. You only can use what's there. But here's how this textbook tries to get around some of these things with this bait and switch that I had mentioned before. Look, normal fruit flies have two wings. This mutant has four. This rare mutation, like most mutations, is harmful. Beneficial mutations are the raw material for natural selection. The question I want to ask you is, did you see the bait and switch there? They baited you with truth, 
But notice then they switched it to a lie. Okay, beneficial mutations, that's how evolution takes place. That's the raw material for natural selection. Well, can I ask then, why didn't you show me a beneficial mutation? Instead, they showed us a bad one. Well, if mutations are the praise of evolution, beneficial ones, then show me one. Instead, they show me a bad one. Why? Because there aren't good mutations. Now, some people will disagree with me on this. They'll say, yes, there are. Beneficial mutations, sickle cell anemia. That's a beneficial mutation. What? Sickle cell anemia, that's a disease. Yeah, but if you get it, you don't get malaria. Well, that's the better of two evils. That's like saying, hey, cut off your leg. You don't get athlete's foot either. That's not a good thing. Others have said seedless oranges. That's a beneficial mutation. For who? You or the orange? Yeah, it's not good. That's like being born sterile. This textbook says a beneficial variation in neck length spreads through a tortoise population by natural selection. But again, mutations or variations don't add new information. Is it still a turtle when it's done? Absolutely. It's abating you with truth. Mutations happen. Switching it to a lie, good ones, is how evolution happens. Well, we also have to look at lessons about natural selection here. How natural selection causes evolution. This is the driving force of how evolution is supposed to take place through natural selection. Did you know that it was a creationist named Edward Blythe that came up with the idea of natural selection even before Darwin? Darwin simply took the idea and then he ran with it and applied that idea to evolution. Really, natural selection is a creationist argument, a creationist evidence. It's what we see. We, as creationists, believe in natural selection. As I said, it is simply God's quality control. That's all it is. Natural selection may have a stabilizing effect, but it does not promote speciation. It's not a creative force, as many people say, according to Science Magazine. This guy says natural selection can act only on those biological properties that already exist. It can't create properties in order to meet adaptational needs. Again, no new information is added. But let's look at evolution and natural selection here. Finches with larger and stronger beaks were better able to open the tough pods and finches with smaller, weaker beaks. So evolution by natural selection had occurred in just one year. But keep in mind, an adaptation must appear before natural selection can even act on it. Where do these fit traits come from to begin with? It's kind of, you have to start with something, but something can't evolve from nothing. But here are Darwin's finches. They look, evolution by natural selection. Well, if you mean evolution is just change, great. But what we're seeing is that those finches, Darwin's finches that have big beaks and little beaks, do you know that those big beaks become little beaks and those little beaks become big beaks again? It goes back and forth depending on the environment, depending on if it's a drought year or a wet year. The birds there are still finches. They've never turned into airplanes or anything else. But one of the great evidences that is used to support this idea of natural selection is the peppered moths. And here's how the story goes in the textbooks. 
that you have these moths that are dark colored and you have some that are light colored. Well, the light colored moths, when they are sitting up against these light colored trees, blend in and so the birds can't see them very well and therefore they survive because the birds don't eat them. Now the peppered moths, they stuck out like a sore thumb against these lighter colored trees so the birds could see them and ate them up. And so you have a great number of lighter moths, a small number of darker moths. But then the Industrial Revolution came, and all the burning of these uh, uh, fossil fuels caused the light trees to become a darker color. Now those lighter colored moths stuck out like a sore thumb, and the darker ones blended in. So now you have more of the darker ones and less of the lighter ones. Look, evolution has happened. What I don't understand is how does that make these moths turn into a bird or anything else? It doesn't, does it? It has nothing to do with evolution. It is simply, as I said, what we agree with, natural selection. Naturally, one's going to go extinct or one is going to thrive. If that's all they were showing, I would have no problems with this being in the textbook. But what I have a problem with is that this is a lie because this never happened. The guys that have done this have admitted it. These were dead moths glued on the trees. They fabricated the evidence to try and come up with something to support evolution. They're dead moths. And get this, the birds aren't flying and feeding at night. The moths only come out at night, so it makes no difference what color the trees are anyway. This is an outright lie that has been in our textbooks, and yet we know it's been false. We know it's a lie, but we keep putting it in our textbooks. In Holt Biology, why is this here? It shouldn't be there. The Tulsa Zoo. We have here, Darwin also had a hobby of breeding domestic pigeons called selective breeding. Changes caused by selective breeding were much like changes caused by natural selection. Instead of nature selecting variations, humans selected them. So therefore, artificial selection, not natural selection, explains the support of Darwin's theory. I don't understand how breeding pigeons has ever made a hawk. It doesn't. It's observational science that has nothing to do with evolution. Survival of the fittest also does not explain the arrival of the fittest. The very phrase survival of the fittest is what we would call a tautology. Think about it this way. Why did it survive? Well, because it's the fittest. How do you know it's the fittest? Because it survived. It can be the highest scorer on a team, but you can still lose, can't you? Just like cancer cells are fitter than other cancer cells, but that isn't evolution. Both are bad. It could be survival of the luckiest. You happen to be in the right spot at the right time. That's all. This textbook says, over a long period of time, natural selection can lead to evolution. No, it can't. No matter how many times the wolf eats a short-legged sheep, the other sheep are still sheep. So the idea that natural selection causes or is the means of evolution taking place is a lie through observational science. We agree with natural selection. We just disagree with what it's supposedly doing. How about lessons from frogs? You see, we can make good observations but come up with terrible conclusions. 
Some scientists one day, they wanted to study these frogs and see how far they could jump. So what they did is they took this frog and they set it on the ground and they said, jump, frog, jump. And this thing jumped an amazing 80 inches. Well, they thought, I wonder what would happen if we cut a leg off of the frog. So they cut one leg off. And they took this three-legged frog and they set it on the road and they said, jump, frog, jump. And this thing jumped an amazing 70 inches. They thought, wow, that's pretty cool. So they decided to take another leg off. So they cut another leg off of the frog. Said, jump, frog, jump. Two legs, 60 inches. Now you can see a pattern starting to form here. 80, 70, 60. So they cut another leg off. Jump, frog, jump. 50 inches. Well, now we've got such a pattern, we ought to be able to do something with this. So they decided to take the last leg off. Now you can see 80, 70, 60, 50. They expected 40 inches this thing is going to jump, right? So they said, jump, frog, jump. Nothing. Jump, frog, jump. Nothing. So they were puzzled because, you see, they were expecting 40. So what happened is this. They made some good observations. A frog jumped less as legs were removed. That's what the data shows. But, you see, now we have to interpret the data. What's the interpretation of the evidence? Well, a frog with no legs must go deaf, right? No, it doesn't go deaf. You've just made a bad interpretation from good science. And this is what's happening all the time. Now, obviously, that didn't really happen. But things like that are happening all the time. As an example here, fruit flies. They wanted to see evolution take place by zapping them with radiation to make mutations happen faster. So what did they do? Well, they zapped the flies with radiation so that the offspring had curly wings, extra wings, no wings, stubby wings. None of them could fly, so they were really fruit crawls. They were also all sterile. They couldn't reproduce. So they made some good observations here. What were the observations? All mutations observed produced fruit flies that were inferior, not as good as the original fly. That's what we see in science. So now you have to interpret the evidence. What's the interpretation? Fruit flies must have evolved as far as they can go. Did you ever stop to think that maybe you're screwing up what God made right to begin with? Yeah. Good evidence, terrible interpretation of it. And by the way, since they were sterile, even if it produced something, you're at a dead end. Evolution would have to start all over. It doesn't work. How about lessons in critical thinking? We have to watch these critical thinking questions because it'll say things like this in our textbook, these questions. Do you think humans are still evolving? What do you think? Do you think humans are still evolving? You do? Okay, well then you're brainwashed. How about you? Do you think humans are still evolving? No? Then you're brainwashed. You see, there's no right answer to that question. That's like me saying, hey, have you stopped taking illegal drugs yet? No? <laughs> okay, see, that's the problem. There's no right answer to that question. If you say yes, it means you used to take illegal drugs. If you say no, well, then we know what's wrong with you, right? <laughs> 
No, there's no right answer. How about, do you think humans are still evolving? Well, they never were. But that begs the question. That's telling you what to think, not teaching you how to think. Here's critical thinking. Predict what a fossil that illustrates the evolution of bird from a reptile might look like. That's not teaching your kids how to think. You know, that's teaching them to imagine science. What might this intermediate fossil look like? Well, there are no intermediates. Here's another one. Describe how cytochrome C provides evidence of evolution. It doesn't. But yet your kids are being told to give an answer of something that has never been observed. It doesn't support evolution at all. How about some lessons in anatomy? Because you see there's so much evidence from structure for evolution. How this happens is we see there's a common design. If you look at a bat or a horse or us, we have a radius and an ulna. So you must be related. Look at this, a dolphin and a dog. It says these homologous structures provide evidence that these animals evolved from a common ancestor. This one says homologous structures such as the forelimbs of humans, cats, frogs, bats, and birds suggest these species are related. The more similar two structures are, the more likely that these species have evolved from a recent ancestor. Look, a human and a cat. We have similar structures. You must be related. And we can go on and on. A frog, an alligator, a chicken, and a horse. We all have some commonalities. You must be related. Here we go. Comparative anatomy, embryology, and molecular biology are all sources of evidence of evolution. I don't think this is evidence at all. Do you know that many of the genes, for example, that cause these, they're completely different genes. So therefore, it can't be related. We have things like frogs and humans that are supposedly similar, yet one has our skin basically comes down to create the fingers, and then the other ones, the fingers grow up. So they develop in different ways, showing that clearly they're not related. It's a completely different thing, just a similar design from a common designer. This one shows the eye has a lens and a retina, yet both are found in an octopus and a human. But an octopus has an amazing eye. One professor said that if God is such a great designer, he screwed up with the human being because an octopus has a better eye than we do because the octopus has the blood cells kind of behind the retina. Ours is kind of more in front and therefore it kind of clouds our vision a little bit. We don't have as good a vision as an octopus would. So clearly, if God is so good, he messed up making the human eye. Really? You know, you bring an octopus out on land, it'll go blind? Because we have blood vessels that are the last defense of radiation from the sun. It protects our eye. The octopus living underwater doesn't need that. So it sounds to me like God knew what he was doing when he created this eye. Do you know that the Pontiac lug nuts fit on a Chevy tire as well? Now, does that prove that they came from a common ancestor? No. It's because GM makes both vehicles. So the same designer 
uses the same design in their creations. And that's simply all we're witnessing in the creation around us, that God, the common designer, uses the same design in many of his creations. So here we see the bat wing and the insect wing. The question here, number eight, the chart shows species B and C have the fewest amino acid differences for a protein among four species. What does this suggest about their evolutionary relationship? I'll tell you what it suggests. It suggests a common designer, not evolution. But again, that critical thinking type of question is giving your child no option. Five plus five cannot be ten. So conclusions from comparative anatomy. Many animals have similar forelimb structures. They must have a common ancestor. Just like that frog goes deaf. Here, comparative anatomy provides further evidence of evolution. This commonality suggests that these and other vertebrate animals are all related. They probably evolved from a common ancestor. You can find this time and time again, but it doesn't make it true just because it's repeated often. How about lessons from Tiktaalik, this so-called great missing link that has proven creation wrong? What is Tiktaalik? It's a fish. Though incomplete... The fossil record contains patterns suggesting the biological evolution of related species. So they admit it's incomplete. There's a lot of gaps in the missing links. Really, it's the whole chain is gone. Missing link is another brainwashing term. That implies there's evidence out there to be found. It's just missing. Well, if it doesn't exist, it's not missing. Well, one of these so-called missing links here with Tiktaalik shows scientists have different ideas about the rate at which natural selection produces new species, slowly, gradually, or quickly. For example, the Tiktaalik fossil here in this picture has both fish and amphibian features. Really? Or is that an interpretation of the features? Here are the bones of Tiktaalik. Front page article of the New York Times said, it's powerful rebuttal to religious creationists who hold a literal biblical view on the origins and development of life. It went on and it said, nature reported evolutionists Ogbert and Clack saying, Tiktaalik and this fish here are straightforward fishes. They've small pelvic fins, retain fin rays in their paired appendages, have well-developed gill arches, suggesting that both animals remained mostly aquatic. Notice that word suggesting, mostly aquatic. Did they get to see this fish come on land? No. The evidence says it remained in the water all the time. It goes on. They argue that Tiktaalik is more tetrapod because the bony gill cover has disappeared. Maybe it just didn't fossilize. And the skull has a longer snout. They say a longer snout suggests a shift from sucking towards snapping up prey, whereas the loss of the gill cover probably correlates with reduced water flow through the gill chamber. Notice that word probably, an interpretation. A longer snout, we covered that. That's variation among a kind. Fish can have longer snouts and shorter snouts, but it's still fish. That doesn't give you any evidence of evolution. And, but they interpret it as sucking and snapping up prey. No, this isn't evolution or evidence of it. It goes on. 
The ribs also seem larger than tiktalic. That means it's not obvious, okay? which may mean it was better able to support its body out of the water. They're trying to get this fish to come up on land. But it doesn't sound like this is you know, undisputable evidence. May mean, seems. They seem larger. We may call them legs, but that doesn't make them legs, does it? So look at this, the evidence in biology that supports evolution. The similarity between the early stages of development is supposedly the best evidence for Darwinian evolution. Darwin thought if you could find the evidence in the embryos of anything, that they were similar, that that would be the best evidence. So what happened was there was a guy named Ernest Haeckel who went out to set out and find the the evidence that Darwin needed for evolution. Darwin said it would be by far the strongest single class of facts in favor of his theory. In this textbook, Comparative Anatomy, we've got the fish, the bird, and the human. Look how similar they are in their embryonic stages. This textbook even says it has tails and a gill pouch. Gills like a fish for a human being. Those aren't gills and they're not slits. Do you know science has shown that those are wrinkles and the wrinkles turn into the glands, part of the ear? That's all it is. They're not gills. Just because you have wrinkles doesn't mean it has the same function. I've seen guys with a lot of wrinkles and they can only breathe out of the top two. Similar design or similar uh, appearance doesn't mean similar function. Simply not true. Well, here's Ernest Haeckel, the guy that set out to show this evidence of evolution for Darwin. He began to study all these embryos in different stages, and he came up with the evidence. Look at these pictures. This here is a dog on the left and a human being on the right. You can hardly tell the difference, can you? We must be related. Haeckel's actual drawings. When I was in high school, this was in my textbook as evidence of evolution. Now again, look, you've got chickens, dogs, human beings, salamanders, and up top, we're almost all identical. Now, we have two choices here. Either Ernest Haeckel was a really bad artist, or he was a liar. Because look at actual photographs of these same things. They're not even close. Well, you can see some similarities. The photographs are on the bottom. His drawings are on the top. I mean, there are some pretty obvious things that he missed there. Well, it turns out he was a liar because he was convicted of fraud in the Jenna court system. Look what he admits. When he was tried in the courts, he confessed this, a small percent of my embryonic drawings are forgeries. Those, namely, for which the observed material is so incomplete or insufficient as to fill in and reconstruct the missing links by hypothesis and comparative synthesis. He goes on, I should feel utterly condemned were it not that hundreds of the best observers and biologists lie under the same charge. In other words, everybody's doing it. Why am I in trouble? And you know what? The same exact thing goes on in science today. People are twisting the information so that they can keep their funding, so that they can get more funding. And anybody who works in research 
will admit that there's a lot of this kind of thing going on. That's not science. This has been proven to be incorrect, this biogenetic law. Look what this uh, says in Science Magazine way back in 1969. The biogenetic law has become so deeply rooted in biological thought, it cannot be weeded out in spite of it having been demonstrated to be wrong. Now, what I want you to understand is Ernest Haeckel, this was back in 1874. And yet, in 1969, we're saying it's been proven to be wrong, but yet it's still in our textbooks. Here again... We see American scientists saying, surely the biogenetic law is as dead as a doornail. But yet it still remains in the 1999 college textbook here, Evolutionary Analysis, Haeckel's Exact Pictures. Look here, this one, Holt Biology. Here's a gill pouch of bony tail of a human, and then there's the chicken. Almost identical, we must be related. Glencoe Biology. A pig and a human being must be related. Here we have these uh, pouches. The similarities in function and location of the gills and glands suggest a strong evolutionary relationship between fish and other vertebrates. Here again, a fish, a reptile, a bird, and a human. Yet these features which develop into the neck and the face parts are supposed to suggest that we're related. It doesn't at all. So watch for those things in your textbooks as well. Let's see. Here's just a few more. Fish, a reptile, a bird, a mammal, biology concepts, same thing. We could go on and on, but I'll tell you one that really gets me. This false science... Right here, by seven months, the fetus looks from the outside like a tiny normal baby, but it's not. Not a baby by seven months. Why? Well, because that baby, even though, by the way, this is scientifically wrong, and most evolutionists today I will say, if you ask them, will say, that's not true. But the impression we're giving our children is that it is but that a baby in the womb goes through a rapid stage of evolution in nine months. From a primordial cell uh, to, to a reptile, a bird, a primate, and ultimately it turns into a human being. One lady in Iowa told me that uh, when her child, she had a birthmark on her neck. When going to a doctor, the doctor said that's where her gills had not healed up all the way yet when she was in the womb. See, it's not a stretch to see how evolution has tied into abortion. And if you want to see that uh, more, see my DVD, Why Creation is Important. Richard Dawkins says this, with respects to those meanings of human that are relevant to the morality of abortion, any fetus is less human than an adult pig. No wonder. If we're teaching our, our young women that inside your womb it's just an animal, by seven months it's not a baby, no wonder they're aborting them. It has no meaning in life, according to Dawkins. How about this lady? She writes for Salon uh, magazine. She said, throughout my own pregnancies, I never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a human life inside me. I believe that's what a fetus is, a human life. But that doesn't make me one iota less solidly pro-choice. 
If by some random fluke I learned today I was pregnant, you bet your blank I'd have an abortion. I'd have the world's greatest abortion. You see, abortion is murder. Bottom line. And no matter what we try to do to justify that that's not a human being inside, the Bible tells us in Psalm 51.5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. From the moment of conception, you were loved by God in need of a Savior. Every pro-choice argument avoids that question, what is it? But now, as we see here with Mary from Salon, that it doesn't matter that we're proving that that is a child. She doesn't care because I'm going to do what I want anyway. Because, you see, morals and morality, we get to make up those two because they're just products of evolution, not because a creator has the right to set rules for our life. I'd love to talk more about this, but again, uh, in other presentations we do, but I want you to see that 34% of babies born at five and a half months survive. Here's Samuel Alexander, a 21-week-old baby, still in the womb, grabbed the doctor's fingers as they were doing surgery on him. They, they reached out and grabbed the doctor's finger. Don't tell me that's not a child. It is. In Genesis 16, 11, when the angel appeared to Sarah, did she say, Hey, Sarah, behold, thou art with fetus. No, she said, thou art with child. But today we change the names of things to soften it. Watch out for that as well. You see, we call it abortion rather than murder. We call it a fetus rather than a child. We soften words up. We call it pro-choice rather than pro-death and pro-life. Isn't it interesting? It's illegal to take an eagle egg, but yet you can kill a baby in the womb. Where's the logical reasoning to that? But that's where our society has taken us, following the disease and philosophy of evolution. We have vestigial structures which is basically body parts that have lost their original function through evolution. Basically saying that evolution, you know, we needed it for a while, so they evolved, but then you didn't need it, so you lost it. You didn't use it. Our pinky, we're, we're really not using it. That's why it's getting shorter. We're losing it. No. It's always been the same, by the way. We, we don't see that any different, really. I mean, we can, and even today, some people have longer fingers and other, you know, different lengths of their toes and whatnot. It's not evolution, variation among the species. But there's all kinds of things. The appendix. Do you know that they used to take out the appendix all the time? They thought, well, as long as we're in there, we might as well take out your appendix too. Because they thought the appendix was a vestigial organ, something that you didn't need anymore. An evolutionary leftover. Well, guess what? They've now found that that's where your immune systems are initiated, and you get it taken out. It increases your susceptibility to leukemia, Hodgkin's disease, cancer of the colon, and cancer of the ovaries. As a matter of fact, it also increases your chances four times more of getting that bacteria that's kind of a superbug where antibiotics and whatnot don't take care of it. It's a safe house for the beneficial gut bacteria. The truth is there are no vestigial organs. Why would you evolve it if you weren't going to need it anyway? It doesn't make sense. 
even if they were true, it's the opposite of evolution. When it comes to animals, they talk about the whale. The whale has a vestigial organ too. Yeah, the pelvic bone. You see, they used to be land animals that walked on land. As a matter of fact, they think they came out of the land, back in the water, you know, more than once through evolutionary history. But yet whale evolution is remarkable. Look at this here. Many organisms retain traces of evolutionary history. For example, whale retains pelvic and leg bones as useless vestiges. This one here, whales have vestigial pelvis and leg bone that serve no purpose. Really. No purpose at all. These people don't know their whale anatomy. We'll talk about that in a minute. But before we do, I want you to see this video here. This guy is one of the leading whale evolutionary uh, doctors out there. Watch what he says in this video. In the early 80s, scientists knew that whales were derived from land mammals and there must be transitional forms, except none of those were known in the fossil record, um, which was uh, really sad. As time progressed then in the 90s and uh, the early years of this century, more and more intermediate forms were discovered um, that really fill in all the intermediates that we were hoping for. And right now, Wales is one of the best examples of uh, macroevolution documented by fossils. He's basically telling us that this is a fact. Evolution has happened in the whale. We see it. And the evidence is right there before him, right? Well, we'll talk more about that here in a little bit. In our textbooks, we see Ambulocetus here and the vestigial pelvis of a whale. Now, supposedly this vestigial pelvis is where those legs used to be attached in this Ambulocetus that came out on land. Here it is, the walking whale, which is supposed to be uh, between Pachycetus and Rhodocetus here. Pachycetus was on the cover of Science Magazine in 1983. Years later, in 2001, guess what? It proved to be absolutely nothing like a whale. No blowhole, no fins, just hooves. Nothing else. But yet, look here on the reconstructions. Can you see this reconstruction on the bottom? A blowhole. That's what was in our museums. But on the top, you can see in this diagram, the bones, the dark ones, that's what was found. In other words, there's no way to see if there was a blowhole because the bones weren't found. So what they do, because they believed in evolution, they put the blowhole in it and on it. So watch this video here again where he is questioned about the blowhole. surprised that uh, the skull wasn't more complete. I thought you had this full, because I've always seen the models in the museums yeah. of the full skull. Did, how did you figure out the, what the shape of the skull? Uh, was it based on these bones or did you have other fossils to go from? So the shape of the skull 
is uh, based on the fossils that we have, and so we have the parts that have the eye and the brain case and the back of the snout. We don't have the tip of the snout, which is unfortunate because we don't know where the nasal opening was, therefore. However, we did find the whole lower jaw, so we do know how long that snout was. Isn't that something? He admits, well, we just did it because that's what we believed. We assumed it. Well, that's not science, yet our kids are being taught, look, whales evolved, and here's the evidence of it. What's the evidence? The, the religion of evolution and nothing more. Well, he claims the cheekbone of Amblycetus is thin and whale-like, but as you can see, it isn't thin at all. It's completely different. Dr. Philip Gingrich here found the fossil pictured here was displayed in the University of Michigan. Now, the fossils have no foot or flipper bones. So, in other words, the evidence isn't there. But yet, in the University of Michigan, we have this picture with clear fins and a whole tail, like a, a fluke tail there. You know what's interesting? Like I said, those bones weren't found. Now, today, because they have later found actual four limbs of this creature, they know it looked nothing like that. So where all those red X's are is make-believe stuff that has now been proven wrong, yet we still see this type of thing in our textbooks as proof of whale evolution, and it didn't even look like that. But they made it look like that even when the evidence wasn't there, but just what they were hoping to have. Watch Dr. Philip Gingrich here admitting there is no tail. The reconstruction of Rhodocetus had a whale fluke, but there were no fossils of the tail to confirm this. Dr. Phil Gingrich, the scientist responsible for the discovery and reconstruction of Rhodocetus, was questioned how he knew there was a whale fluke on Rhodocetus, since that part of the fossil was missing. Well, I told you we don't have the tail in Rhodocetus, so we don't know for sure whether it had a ball vertebra indicating a fluke or not. So I speculated it might have had a fluke. Scientist Gingrich also acknowledged that the flippers were drawn on the diagram without these fossils. Now, he does not believe this animal had flippers. Again, his answer was surprising, since the museum diagrams had flippers on Rhodocetus. Now, since then, we've found the forelimbs, the hands, and the front arm, the arms, in other words, of Rhodocetus. And we understand that it doesn't have the kind of arms that can be spread out like flippers are on a whale. And if you don't have flippers, I don't think you can have a fluke tail and really powered swimming. And so I now doubt that Rhodocetus would have had a... Isn't that something? And this is what we're calling science? Again, here's our textbook saying, just imagine... Imagine whales walking around. It's true. I'm sorry. I can't imagine. Can you? No. Those are not the remnants of legs walking around. Do you know that those bones actually have muscles that attach to them that are very important for this in reproduction? Without them, this whale would not be able to reproduce. They're not vestigial evolutionary leftovers that have no purpose. They have purpose. But they're trying to make it a vestigial organ simply to show evolution.
Look, the whale pelvis located far from the vertebrae has no apparent function, yet it clearly does. The whale's pelvis is evidence of its evolution from its four-legged land-dwelling mammal. That's not observable. That is your religion telling you that. Even snakes sometimes, they will say, have these vestigial elements to them because a snake can have these spurs on the back where apparently they had legs. No, do you know that those spurs, they, again, for reproduction, a snake has no arms. They need to hang on. And they use that for that purpose. So it does have a reason. It's not an evolutionary leftover at all. But here, rudimentary hind legs of a python snake, this textbook says. And not only do we have the appendix, but there's also the tailbone that apparently has no use. This textbook even says that. The tailbone in humans, a vestigial structure can be viewed as evidence for evolution. Organisms having these probably shared a common ancestry. Well, right here we go. That's right, dear. Our ancestors had tails. That's what they're teaching our children. I'll tell you something. If you think that your uh, tailbone, your coccyx, has no apparent function, I'll pay to have yours taken out. We'll see if it has a function. Do you know that some, because of cancer and different things, that people have had to have their coccyx removed? It is painful for them to sit down without it. It is extremely important, but yet it has no use. Yes, it does. Not to mention muscles that attach to it again. They say that we lost it. You see, that's just where your tail used to be. But we didn't use our tail, so it's gone now. Didn't use it. I'd love a tail. You know, you could open up the door with a bag of groceries, drive down the road and tune the radio and drink a can of pop at the same time. Didn't use it. I'd use mine all the time. How about junk DNA? They say about 97% of our DNA on human chromosomes does not form genes. It's called junk DNA. It's of no use. Really. You know what's amazing? That was in 2012. Now they're realizing that the junk DNA does have uses. They just didn't know what they were. They still haven't figured out what a lot of it's used for. In other words, we're seeing how amazingly complex the human body is, how dumb we are, but how amazing God is. Because it's not junk, it's got a purpose. How about this? Magnetic reversals. It says magnetic field is like a large bar magnet. It has reversed direction hundreds of times throughout history. The idea is that as seafloor spreading takes place, that we see over millions of years what the magnetic reversals have done, that you have a positive, a negative, a positive, a negative as it goes out. What they don't like to tell you is that it's not so nice and neat. Because if you go underneath that positive just a few inches, it might be negative. And then positive. It's all a mess underneath there. But they want you to think that, you know, over millions of years, it changes from one to the other. When in fact, there's all kinds of evidence that these magnetic reversals take place quickly. Look here. Do you know that lightning strikes can make reversals? Heat makes reversals. So rapid subduction of seafloor that we would have seen at the time of Noah's flood, as those things, the continents are going underneath, that heat is going to cause magnetic reversals as well. So really, if you do a good study on magnetic reversals, you see that Noah's flood is probably the best reason why we see these 
but they happen very quickly, within hours and days of each other, but not you know, evidence of millions of years. How about fossil species? When Bill Nye debated uh, Ken Ham, one of the things Bill Nye said was, you know, if the earth is you know, just a few thousand years old like you say, Ken, then um, there should be 11 new species forming every day to get to the current number of species we have today. There should be newspaper articles saying, hey, look, the new species are da 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 But no, there's no way you can get to the number of species, over 250 million species today, no way that you can get that from this short period of time. Well, do you know that we actually do see that forming? There's just not headline articles of it because, bottom line, nobody cares. We see two to 300 new fish species every year. And that's in the fish. That's in the ocean of things that we can hardly see, let alone insects and things like that that reproduce like crazy. Elephants. Elephants, they have a long gestation period of about two years to have a baby. Two years. This is where you women can be glad you're not elephants. From a single pair of elephants, two elephants, a mom and a dad, do you know that in their lifetime they can have 60 descendants? That's just in one lifetime of an elephant. At that rate, just doing the math, do you know that a single pair of elephants in 700 years would have 19 million elephants? See, you can get a lot of species very quickly. If elephants can produce 19 million in 700 years, what do you think could form? since the 4,500 years or so since Noah's flood. Not a problem to get the speciation we have today. Not to mention, if the earth is old, the species would have had to replace 20 times in 600 million years. Therefore, one would expect the number of species in the fossils should be far less than the 1.3 million alive today. So 10% of the species should have a living representative today. In other words, if evolution were true, evolution should happen. Therefore, what's alive today should be vastly different than what's in the fossil record. It should be 90% different. But instead, you know what we see? It's almost identical. Everything that was alive in the past looks the same today. Sure, there are things that have gone extinct, like dinosaurs and other things like that. But if it was alive back then, and it's alive today... It's virtually unchanged. Check this out. Bjorn Curtin showed 88% of mammal species in Europe today are present in the fossils in Europe and 99% in the fossils elsewhere. Dr. James Valentine showed 76.8% of marine mollusks in California are in the fossils. In other words, what we would expect if the earth was young and God created, and it's just speciation, things should be unchanged is exactly what we see in the fossil record. Bill Nye also challenged Ken Ham with the trees. He said, you know, trees, you're saying the earth is about 6,000 years old. Here's a tree, it's, it's 9,000 years old. So clearly you're wrong. Well, all Ken Ham would have had to say is this. Yeah, you know, you're getting that 9,000-year-old date based on the dating methods. But the actual tree rings of that same tree show it to only be about 4,300 years old, which is in line with Noah's flood around 4,500 years ago. 
Therefore, it's good evidence that this tree grew from the time of Noah's flood. And not to mention that, but if you go before the flood, do you know that the oldest fossilized trees that we have or petrified trees has only 1,700 rings? Noah's flood occurred 1,656 years after creation. Therefore, the trees are supporting the timeline before the flood and the timeline after the flood. And so the dating methods are not accurate. Tree rings are a much better way of dating these trees. How about Noah's Ark? Bill and I said, Noah's Ark, there's no way you could build an ark that big out of wood. As a matter of fact, a few years ago, some people tried it, and it kind of shifted and turned, and it leaked like a sieve. It's terrible. You can't do it. There's no way you can build a boat that big. Really? Is that your opinion, or is that science? Because science and history tell us that people did build boats that big. Look at this. This boat was destroyed in World War II. You can see some people there for scale. We have historians, Usher, describing a boat, 1,600 rowers, 800 on each side, 1,200 fighting men, 4 to 500 feet long. Ptolemy told us a 420-foot long boat, 57 foot wide, 72 feet high. That was in 244 B.C. So there are big boats that have been built. Just because Bill Nye says one they tried and it didn't work, maybe they just weren't very good at building boats because history tells us that there are a lot of them that big. And not only that, the best research that I can see is we just don't even try making wood boats that big because we can make bigger ones out of steel that are going to be stronger. And remember Noah's Ark? It only had to make it one year. And the boat that he is talking about that leaked was in, it was used for a number of years before it began to leak. The ark only had to float for one year. Not to mention the dimensions given of Noah's ark are very scientifically uh, perfect, you might say. The hull of Noah's ark was six times longer than it was wide. It's a perfect, kind of in the Goldilocks zone there for boat building. In 1993, a scientific study done at a major South Korean ship research center here, showed it was the best shape to build a boat. In fact, the ark's proportions were used in cargo ships and the USS Oregon, and it proved to be one of the most stable battleships ever built. How about this one? Zhang He in 1400s built a boat, had nine masts between 404 and 450 feet long. Zhang He, the port city here in Indonesia, was built to honor him, as a matter of fact. In 2005, they had a huge celebration to mark the 600th anniversary of his voyage. We even have other boats here. Here's a picture of Zheng He. He's kind of comparing it to Noah's Ark. So much about saying that Noah's Ark couldn't be built. Simply not true. Uh, And there are other scientific possibilities that we don't know, the Bible doesn't say, but moon pools that could have been in Noah's Ark. That's basically kind of a hole that goes up the center where water would kind of go in and up. And that way it relieves stress as well as a place to dump refuse and also then causes air to flow through it as well. Now again, we don't know for sure if Noah's Ark had this, but it's certainly a scientific explanation for some of the problems that critics bring up. And I talk about some of these things on my DVD on Noah's Ark, but uh, bottom line is this is a quick summary uh, to answer what Bill Nye 
had said. A couple of other things, though, that are interesting. I don't know if you ever watched Mythbusters, but Mythbusters took what's called uh, bed liner. And it's that kind of rubber spray that you stick in the back of your pickup bed. And they put it on the front end of a bumper of a car to see what it would do. Now, it's pretty amazing. Watch this film here. We're going to simulate a minor fender bender. To do that, we're going to back our car in the treated and untreated side into this barrier at six miles an hour. We want to get minor damage and compare the differences. Yep, and six miles per hour still equates to a 5,000 joule impact. Okay, this is six miles per hour rear bumper test. Here we go. First, on the untreated side... And then the bedliner side. Nice job, man. I don't think I'll ever get used to that. Grant's no fan of rear enders, but it does seem like the bedliner can take the strain. Well, you know what? I'm going to have to say that was a win for the bedliner. I mean, look at this. It's still intact. Dude, that's crazy. The untreated bumper is shattered, while the bedliner is practically untouched. But can it survive a six-mile-per-hour assault from the front? This is going to be funny. Oh, my God, what are you, blind? <laughs> Just kidding. All right, that was a good hit. I'm okay. Human crash test dummy. Uh. Well, that was a solid hit, and it looks like the bedliner wins again. Dude. Look, we have cracking here and here, but none on the bedliner side. That is totally amazing. And that's some serious damage right there. As you can see, it worked really well. So Smash Labs, they also did the same kind of thing. Watch what they do here. They're going to spray the bed liner and put some explosives in front of it on this brick wall and do it without the bed liner. And notice what the difference is. This is a cinder block wall blowing up. In a real building, the debris would fly with deadly consequences. Time to test the truck bed liner on a grander scale. Success will bring the team. So, why would I show you this? Bottom line, because what did God have Noah do to Noah's ark? Covered it with pitch inside and out, didn't he? Well, if he covered it with pitch on the inside and out, do you suppose, just like that bed liner, that it would make it stronger? That maybe it wasn't just to keep the water out, but that there are other things involved in making that boat float? I think God knew what he was doing when he told Noah to build that boat. But we always say, oh, it couldn't happen, it couldn't happen. Well, there's lots of things that maybe the Bible doesn't tell us about that they did to show certainly the ark would have been uh, not only a floatable boat, but probably a very, very strong, sturdy one to take all those animals on. It was kind of funny. One of the things that uh, somebody asked Bill Nye is, what would change your mind? And his answer was this. 
well, if we could have something that would be, you know, down here in the geological record, swim up to the top or swim down to the bottom. Well, that's interesting because do you know that that geological column, they want to give you the impression that, you know, everything's nice and tidy. It isn't. There are thousands of times we see things that are down here, up here, things that are up here, down there. As a matter of fact, this guy here in this book, Living Fossils, it's a great book, it shows you there that we find fossils of every major invertebrate animal phylum, shellfish, echinoderms, all those things, with dinosaurs. Birds with dinosaurs. Birds like owls, penguins, ducks, loons, albatrosses, sandpipers, and more. 432 mammal species found with dinosaurs. Almost 100 complete or nearly complete skeletons of mammals with dinosaurs. Guys, dinosaurs and mammals, they don't live together. Birds and dinosaurs aren't supposed to be together. I'll give you $100 to find a museum out there, besides a creation museum, that will show you dinosaurs uh, with birds together in their little dioramas and whatnot. You don't see it. Yet the fossil record says they live together, but they don't want to show it because it doesn't fit their theory of evolution. Here, this guy... He's an evolutionist, says, we find mammals in almost all of our dinosaur dig sites. They weren't noticed years ago. We have about 20,000 pounds of bentonite clay that is mammal fossils that we're trying to give away to some researchers. And he goes on. Calvin Smith says, to the surprise of many, ducks, squirrels, platypuses, beaver-like, and badger-like creatures have all been found in dinosaur-era rock layers, along with bees, cockroaches, frogs, pine trees, most people don't picture a T-Rex walking along with a duck flying overhead, but that's what the so-called dino-era fossils would prove. You see, this is what the fossil record shows, but it's not what our museums are showing. Let me show you one thing here as well that's, I think, very important. Look at this dog here. You see, everything gets a genus and a species name, and this, the same book will talk about this. For a dog, the genus is simply canis. That's why we call them canines. The species for this dog is here, familiaris. So everything gets a genus and a species name. Well, here is a bulldog and an English wolfhound. Notice the different size, shape, length, thickness. Completely different, isn't it? If you found these two fossils in the fossil record and dogs weren't alive today, do you think you would say you found the same kind of animal? No. You would give them certainly a different genus name. Yet the fact is, because they are alive today and we can see them, we know they're both the same genus. Dog, canis. Well, look at this. Here is an alligator skull in the fossil record compared to one alive today. The only thing that didn't fossilize is that little bone there in the circle at the nose. Just didn't fossilize. If you found this fossil, would you say, wow, I found a fossilized alligator? Of course you would. Did they? Not at all. As a matter of fact, they gave it a different genus and species name. I mean, at the very least, you put it in the same category, the same genus, but they don't. Why? Because this is millions of years old. It's got to be different. Remember I said they changed the names to make it look as if evolution is true. 
And this isn't an isolated example. Here we have the modern goblin shark tooth compared to the fossil record. Same thing, but they gave it a different genus and species name. The coelacanth fish, alive today, I showed you that earlier, but what they do is just give it a different genus and species name. That way we don't have to call it the same thing. The modern purple heart next to a fossilized one, different genus and species name. Freshwater shrimp, identical, but they gave it a different genus and species name. And we could go on and on. That is not evolution. That is an unchanged fossil record. How about horse evolution to close out? You see, they tell us that we have horse evolution because we see the horse's hooves and things like that, that there's this backbone that is longer or shorter. And then you have short horses and tall horses. That's evolution. No, it isn't. We've got short horses and tall horses just like we have short dogs and tall dogs, don't we? We have different ones seen here in this textbook, and you can see all the different ages of them. Now, this is Glencoe Science in 2012. And here's Prentice Life Science, 1991. Not much has changed. They're still using Eohippus and all these other ones all the way up to the modern equine, saying that they have different numbers of ribs. So that somehow is evolution. It isn't. Like I said, just as you can have big horses and small horses, it's just like you have big dogs and little dogs, a variation among species. But that's not all. This one here, biology, back in 1992, said other examples, including the much-repeated gradual evolution of the modern horse, have not held up under close examination. Way back in 1950, they said many examples commonly cited, such as the evolution of the horse family, or saber-toothed tigers, can be readily shown to have been unintentionally falsified. Here we see in 1953, it says that Dear to the hearts of the generation of textbooks writers have never happened in nature. What are they talking about? Well, they're talking about some of these so-called missing links of the horses, that they never happened. And some of these pictures that you're seeing are things of what they propose must be there, even though we haven't found them. Here, this one says, although the fossil record is incomplete, it contains many examples of fossil sequences showing close ancestral relationships. Well, I already said that that's not a close relationship. It is a common design. Here are the problems with horse evolution. First, it came up with the idea here, this Mr. Marsh back in 1874 from fossils that were from all around the world, not one general location. Not only that, but the modern horses today are found in layers that are lower than these so-called missing links. So how can you have something evolving if you've already got it? In addition to that, the ancient horse, this hierocarathium, is not a horse. It's just like a modern hyrax today. In other words, one of these so-called missing links that's supposed to evolve up to the horse is still living today, and it's not a horse. So don't let this horse evolution fool you either. Ribs, toes, and teeth are all different. The South American fossils go from one-toed to three-toed, which is the reverse order of what it's supposed to for evolution. And they have never been found in the order that is presented in our textbooks. Three-toed and one-toed horses basically grazed side by side. And some of them that they say 
we've never found. Don't buy into that horse evolution. So let's close with this, basically a good reminder. And that is this, that we need to train our children with God's word to make sure that that is our, our, our worldview. That's our foundation of which we interpret the evidence in. Because as you can see, the evidence of evolution, it is clearly being uh, interpreted by the, well, a religion of evolution.